If God is able, we are able. Welcome to the One Cause Church podcast with Pastor Eric Holler. Revelation chapter 1. Here we go. We're going, uh, Jesus is coming back soon. That's as far as my eschatology knowledge goes. But Revelation chapter 1, this is a great book. How many of you have ever read the book of Revelation? All right. There's a blessing for you in that. Do you know that? I'm grateful to God it doesn't say blessed is he who understands this book. It says blessed is he who reads it. So that's definitely a plus for me. Amen. (laughs) But there's some wonderful, there's an amazing verses of Scripture in the book of Revelation. It talks about where we're going who we really are and what we're really connected to. And I do recommend you read it sometime and uh, look over the place where you're going to be living forever. Amen. Um, Here, we're going to get into a series that I taught maybe about three and a half years ago called Kings and Priests. And I'm very happy to bring this message back around because it's very important for the body of Christ. It's important for you to, uh, to hear this because I think it'll help... Maybe set some things straight for you, for your life. Maybe answer some questions that you might have about you and your calling. And uh, just help you live a more fulfilled life. How many of you would like that? Right? We all want to live a life of meaning and significance. And I believe this teaching will help you um, really have greater understanding of that. In Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 5. Now, today I'm going to lay some foundation for you, so we're going to look over some scriptures. I want you to really listen because there are a couple of things I want you to hear from this message today so that you'll really get the heart of this message. There's some real important things that you need to understand so that we can go further. Okay, are you with me? All right. Uh, Verse 5 of Revelation chapter 1, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him, that is to Jesus, who loved us. Aren't you glad that he loves us? Aren't you glad that he loved us? Right? Now, this us that we read here, is that us here in the room today? Hmm? Are we included in that us? And washed us from our sins. Is that still the same us? How many of you are washed away from your sins today through him who loved you, all right? And with his, he washed us from our sins, washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. Is this the same us that he loved, the same us that he washed? All right, I just want to make sure we're all clear here. He made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. And ever, amen. Jesus loved us. Jesus washed us from our sins, and he made us kings and priests. Are you catching that? All right? Now, what an, an extraordinary thing God did for us. I, I'm, I'm amazed by this love that so elevated our lives out of death and out of sin and didn't just, just see fit to just pull us up out of the junk, but he actually brought us into something marvelous. He translated us out of darkness and then brought us into the light. That's why his name was Jesus. Actually, that, his name is Jesus through Greek transliteration. His name was actually Joshua, Yeshua HaMashiach, Joshua the Messiah. That wasn't tongues. That was an attempt at Hebrew. But anyway, Yeshua, Joshua the Messiah. That's what they called him, Joshua, all right? And so his name, he was named of all the people that God would name his son after, of all the names he could give him, 
he thought it best to give him the name Joshua. All right? And of the Old Testament figures that we have, Moses is probably the greatest figure in the Old Testament, right? I mean, if God were going to name his son after anyone in the New Testament, New, Old Testament, why wouldn't he name him Moses? It even has a good ring to it. Moses, Messiah. All right? But, but because we, he wants us identified and so connected to that name, therefore we need to understand what the meaning of that name is. Moses means drawn out. Drawn out. And that's exactly what Moses did, didn't he? He drew them out. He brought them out of. But Moses did not get to take them into the promised land. Now, he delivered them from the enemy, but that's as far as the deliverance went concerning Moses' ministry. But then his successor, a young man by the name of Joshua, took them into all that God had promised them. And Joshua means deliverer. So that every time you utter the name of Jesus, you are identifying not what you've been delivered out of so much as what you've really been delivered into. That's what God wants you more concerned about today than what was. The Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, He is our high priest of the good things to come. Glory to God. Now, where are we? What book are we in? We're in Revelation. I want you to take your Bible now and go turn to 2 Kings. Second Sam- Wait, I don't know. Hang on, let me check. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, so what we understand is what God did for us was that he, he took this office, this partnership, this divine partnership of kings and priests, and this was something that was established in the Old Testament, yet according to Revelation, he actually brought that partnership over into the New Testament into our lives today. And lots of things crossed over. Faith was one of them. Thank God for Abraham, right? And uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, He believed God, he, Abram, believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Paul takes that piece of Scripture, that revelation, and brings it over into the New Testament, begins to teach us. Really, it's the centerpiece for all the New Testament doctrine, that we believe God, and it's accounted to us for righteousness. Even, even uh, what we... Uh, participated in today in communion. This was also found in the Old Testament. Abraham had, had uh, just come back from war. He had beat up five kings and all of their guys. He took 318 men from his own house who he trained up. This old man, he was tough, right? And he goes and rescues his nephew Lot, who they had captured, and also took all of their spoils and came back. And he was coming to a place called the Valley of Kings. Now, only kings could be in the Valley of Kings. You know, at one time, there were places like Cozumel, and those places were only... Uh, special places that royalty could go to. People like us couldn't attend there. All right? The Valley of Kings was a place that only kings could attend. And so you can understand the kind of uh, uh, reputation that Abram had that he could just go to the Valley of Kings. He was a king in the earth. As a matter of fact, he was possessor of heaven and earth. And on his way there, the king of Sodom is coming to meet him to, to get the spoils back from him. And yet this mysterious character steps in the way. We know very little about, but we know the scripture teaches us that he's the priest of the Most High God. His name is Melchizedek. And the scripture says Melchizedek came to greet Abraham having bread and wine. 
And we know what communion means for us today. As we said, we do demonstrate the Lord's death until he comes. Everything that crossed over from the Old Testament that we now experience today got better. It just got more potential, more productivity because of Jesus Christ. All right? Tithing was also in the Old Testament, which was crossed over into the New Testament as well. Another, another uh, water baptism as well. Jesus himself was water baptized. John, the, the Baptist, baptized people under the context of the law, the baptism of repentance. But now water baptism is all about us rising into new not, newness of life in Christ, burying the old nature. So lots of things were. And so God saw to it then that uh, this, this partnership also of kings and priests, or, or callings, if you will, there's the office of the king and there's the office of the priest, and God saw to it that those things got transferred into our lives today. Now, this might be something you've heard before, maybe you've never heard it, but I want to encourage you either way um, that this is so important for your life that you understand what you're called to do so that you can know what to do, so that you can live that fulfilled life, so that you can fulfill what God has purposed for your life to do in the earth. Amen? And that wherever you're called to do, that you get to it and you bear fruit in it. Amen? Can I get a, a better amen than that? All right, now, as the children of God, we need to understand, and this is one of the most important things I wanted to share with you today, uh, that, that is really the foundation for where we're going, and that is, as the children of God, we live our lives on two levels, right? We have a personal life. And, we, and then we also are the body of Christ. But we all have a personal life. Did you know that I have a personal life? You might not, didn't, might not have known that, but I do, right? And in, that, in your personal life, you'll really operate in both of these functions. You'll operate as a king, like you decree things and declare things and go to war for your family and whatever needs to happen. But then there's also where you'll, you'll act as a priest. You'll pray and you'll intercede. Are, are, you get, are you catching this? But in the body of Christ, you're functioning in the church, in the body of Christ, you'll function either as a king or a priest, and we'll open this up to you more as we go along. But remember that truth, all right? That's important for you to get, that you live your life on two levels, your personal and your place in the body of Christ. Now, uh, where did I tell you to go? Uh, some of you were really listening. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Uh, now, you might be here today and, and think, you know, well, I don't really believe I'm either a king or a priest, but as a child of God, I don't, there's really no other options for us, right? He's made us kings and priests, and so uh, you don't get to write your own gospel, right? We follow him. Uh, or you might be thinking, well, I don't know which one I am. Well, if you're here today and you're not in full-time ministry, you're functioning as a king in the earth. You're functioning as a king in the earth. Now, you might think, say, well, Pastor Eric, I feel like maybe the Lord will call me into the ministry later on down there. Well, great, great. But until then, you'll function as a king until that day comes. I, I personally knew what I was called to at a young age, at the age of 10. I knew God called me to preach. I knew I was going to be getting into this thing. Even in later years of my life, I, I found that I had a desire to play music professionally and, and in other words, be a rock star, but, you know, but... And I, we did that for a long time, but I, I knew I would never really get away from that call, that ultimate call to, to preach the Word of God, to, to pastor people, and, and uh, aren't you better for it today? So, <laughs> you weren't supposed to laugh. Maybe, maybe I missed my calling. Uh, 
But you know what? The sad thing to me is that there's lots of kings in the earth that are trying to be priests. And, 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 and so they're, 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 they're getting themselves in a lot of trouble as a result. But what we need to understand is that in the church, like even sitting here today, most of you are kings. There's a handful of priests here today. And that's how God designed it. I mean, he set this precedent from the very beginning with the 12 tribes of Israel. One tribe was priests. All the other ones would act as kings. All the other ones would go to war. Uh, even the kings would be born from those other tribes. But the, you never saw the Levites ever going over to Judah and say, you'd make a great priest once you come over here. You never saw them proselyting. Right? They knew who they were, so they functioned in their call. And all the other tribes knew who they were, and they functioned in their call. All right? And I want to help you with this today because there's been this not-so-subtle pressure to just in the church for so many years that everybody needs to be in full-time ministry. Right? And so there have been kings sitting out there going, just sitting unfulfilled. And if they're sitting unfulfilled, they don't know what they're called to do, and eventually they just become a spectator, and before long they just drop out of church. Because they're not finding what they're looking for. Are you hearing me today? And so the church for many years has this underdeveloped, underdeveloped kingship and an overdeveloped priesthood. So it's like riding in your car, half side with flat tires, and the other side with overinflated tires. How many of you know that's going to be a long, bumpy trip? Right? It's going to be a very ineffective way to get where you're going. And so I believe that has been part of the problem in the church. And that kings have been made to feel like they're second-class citizens if they're not in full-time ministry. When yet both of these are callings from God. Both of this is a divine partnership that God has brought into our time right now. So we must understand what that calling is, what it looks like, what the purpose is, so that we can get to it and bear fruit like we're supposed to. Now, we're going to look over in this example in 2 Kings chapter 11. I didn't forget. And we're going to look at a king. Now, we're not going to look at a king yet who tried to function as a priest because I'm telling you, that's where you get in trouble. But, we're all, but there's also trouble, too, if you don't just do what you're called to do. All right? So we're going to first look at this king who simply didn't do what he was supposed to be doing. And, second, and you know this king. He's called the great king in Israel, King David. In 2 Kings chapter 11, we pick up in verse... One And let's read here. And I want you to notice it says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. What do kings do? All right, so there was a time, there was a season when that would happen. All right? That David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. That's a problem. What's the king supposed to be doing right now? Going to battle. This is the season where kings go out to battle. I'll explain why they did that here in a little bit. There's a season, it was a time, but David neglected to do what he was called to do. David remained at Jerusalem. Anybody ever seen the movie Jaws? Right? At this point, if we could just look at this like a movie. This is where you'd begin to hear dun 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 right? The shark's in the water, but we don't see him yet. This is trouble right here. David remained in Jerusalem. Now one of the saddest things is about to happen in this man's life, and David is about to make a decision that would mess up his life. 
he was, he's going to make a decision which he does not ever really fully recover from. Now, I just want to talk to you today so maybe I can help you not make a decision that's going to jack your life up. All right? That is, you've got to understand what you're called to do and then do it. And don't neglect to do that thing. I mean, we've got plenty of examples of people who have neglected to do what they're supposed to do and found themselves in lots of trouble. I mean, let's just go through the 80s for a moment and think of the preachers that fell during that time and how it was on a public stage. And even if their names are spoken today, there's still that stigma behind it, either embezzlement or sex or whatever it might have been. And our latest guy would have been out in Colorado Springs who was the president of the Evangelical Association. How many of you know that by doing what he did, he got off the bus and he'll never be able to get on that bus again? His life, hey, does God forgive? Absolutely, God forgives no matter what you do, and he'll forgive every time. Yeah. Now, have you know that you can make a decision, though, today that could mess up, the, mess up your life even though God forgives you? Yeah. All right? Yeah. So this is important that we get this today so that we can flow in the grace and the power of God to fulfill his call on our lives. Yeah. In this story, you're going to find by David remaining in Jerusalem, things begin to fall apart quickly. The scripture tells us that he went out up on the rooftop at night. Now, here's the problem. David made a decree earlier that said you don't do that. And the reason they didn't do that is because at night is when the women bathed on the rooftops. They all had pools on top of their houses. How cool is that? Anyway, they all bathed on their rooftops so that they could escape the heat of the day. So David finds his way up there on the rooftop. And have you know, he's got a good view. He's the king. He's got the tallest house. Right? Now, I know a little bit about human nature, and I've counseled people long enough to realize and know this is probably not the first time he's been up on this roof. Right? And so he's scanning the rooftops, if you will, disobeying his own decree, and his eyes fall upon a woman by the name of, it's kind of punny almost, Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was was no ordinary person out there. I mean, she's the wife of one of his number one guys, his, one of his right-hand men by the name of Uriah. So David knew Bathsheba. He'd, she'd been in his courts. He's very familiar with her. As a matter of fact, she lived next door. <laughs> so he goes up there to the rooftop, and he sees her, and the Scripture says that he lusted after her, and then he called for her to come to him, and so his servants go get her and tell her that she has an audience with the king. I don't think she knows what to expect at that moment until he begins to make advances on her. You know, come here often. You know, I don't know what he's doing, but, you know, he's throwing down some lines, you know. And, and, but the scripture, says that, the scripture says that she resisted him, but she didn't really resist him too hard. I mean, how do you resist the king? Right? So then David ends up committing adultery with this woman, dog, while her husband's out fighting for him, where he's supposed to be. Right? But he's neglecting what he's supposed to be doing. And so therefore, he commits adultery, and man, it, gets, it starts turning into a Jerry Springer show. Because now, now she gets pregnant. All right? So now David's got got some real problems here. He wanted two or three nights of hot sex and that'd be over with, but now David has found himself in major trouble. All right? So what does he do? What does he, well, he sends for Uriah to come in from the battle that he's been fighting where David himself should be, calls him, gets him there to his home and has 
makes Uriah sit down, and they eat and drink, and they drink, and they drink, and they drink, and David gets the guy drunk, and he gets him drunk. He says, now you go home and sleep with your wife, man. I'm sure it's been a long time since you've seen her. Go do what you do. So he sends him out thinking, okay, all right, got that fixed. Goes to bed, gets up the next morning, going to go get him a cup of coffee. So he opens the door to his room and trips over Uriah, who's been laying there all night long on his threshold. David's like, what are you doing, man? Go home. And Uriah's like, and I'm going to paraphrase what Uriah said, but you can read something like this. He said, how in the world can I enjoy the pleasures of eating and drinking in the bed with my wife when my brothers are fighting a war out here? And then he says, as you live, and even as your soul lives, king, I will not do that. I, I like Uriah. How many of you think that he makes a good friend? This is a loyal man. How many want David as a friend right now? Uh-uh. Right? So now, so David then tries again. He says, okay, in a couple of days you can go back. So he gets, him, he gets him drunk again, but Uriah still never went down to his house to do what the king wanted him to do. So then the king made a decision. And he sat down and wrote a letter to his commander, the commander was a guy by the name of Joab, and he writes, Dear Joab, Uriah, the Hittite, I want him in the hottest part of the battle. And when it gets really hot, I want you to call for retreat for the other men, but make sure Uriah stays there in the front so that he dies. And he rolls up his letter, and he puts his king's seal on it, and he puts it in the hands of none other than Uriah himself. So here's Uriah, the man of integrity, the man who longs to serve the king, the man who lives to serve his nation, takes in his hand his own death warrant and runs back to battle and lays that death warrant into the hand of Joab, who breaks the seal, opens it up, and reads that Uriah needs to die. And that's exactly what happened. Joab followed orders. Uriah dies in battle. The news comes back to the king. Bathsheba mourns for her husband for a time, and then David brings her into his own home as his wife. All because the king didn't go up to war. Commits adultery, fraud, and now murder. And by the, by the end of this story, the baby ends up dying too. Very sad king who simply neglected his office. Now, let's go look at another king for a moment. Now go to 1 Kings chapter 13. Now, I understand this message is a little heavy this morning, and I'm not trying to be too heavy, but there are some important things that we need to understand today. Is this helping you today? All right, I want, I'm here to encourage you and to build you, remember that, to bless you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, uh, let's look at First Samuel. What did I say? First Samuel thirteen. Thank you very much. You're a good class. Look at verse one. Now Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself three thousand men of Israel. Two thousand were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan, that's Saul's son, in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it, uh, said that 
Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were gathered together to Saul at Gilgal. Interesting story. Now, I'm going to read just a piece of scripture to you before we move further in that. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 20. If you're taking notes, you can just jot this down. And this is the principles for governing warfare, something that God set up a long time ago. And listen to this. It's verse 1, it says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today... You are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So there's this precedent set that before Israel goes into battle, there must be a priest come and make declarations and even sacrifices as well. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 13, um, let's look at... Uh, Verse 8. Jump down to verse 8. First Samuel 13, 8. Then he waited seven days. Now remember, they're ready for battle. I mean, they've ticked the Philistines off. They're ready for battle. They're arrayed for it. And now he says he waited seven days. That's Saul. According to the time set by Samuel, that's the prophet. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So I'm, you know, I, I can understand what Saul's going through here, right? He, first of all, he's only been king two years. And Samuel has anointed him to be king by Israel asking for a king. And Samuel really is a mentor to Saul. He's more like a father to him. They're very close in relationship. And he's apparently given Saul instructions, wait seven days before, if the battle begins, wait seven days before you actually engage. That way I can come and do what I need to do as the priest. Well, guess what? The seven days happens and Samuel doesn't show up. Now the people are freaking out, right? The people who are wanting to fight, now they begin to disperse. They begin to go away. Have you ever found yourself in a place where the trouble keeps getting bigger, but your resources are getting smaller along the way, right? So you can feel the pressure that's on Saul here, all right? Now look what happens here. Let's continue to read. Look at look what King Saul uh, does here. Look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul should not have done that. All right? Whose job is that? That's the priest or the prophet. And here Saul does that. He offers the burnt sacrifice. He, should, he shouldn't have done it. We know that, right? So why shouldn't he have done it? Because it's the priest's job. But look at verse 10. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. I'm sure it relieved Saul greatly to see the prophet of God. Right? For one thing, uh, I mean, now they, they could get ready for battle. But don't you, I, I believe that also he, he was happy to even see Samuel alive because it was the habit of nations to try to get the prophet kidnapped because these prophets were like secret weapons for Israel. Because God would reveal to them the enemy's battle plan and tell them, and then they could have the upper hand in battle. So these enemy nations, they got wind of that, so they would try to apprehend the, the prophet or kill the prophet so that he couldn't give them information from God. So I'm sure that Saul was very relieved to see Samuel still alive. So he comes out to greet him, right? And I'm sure expecting an embrace, uh, right? But look at this. Look at verse 11. And Samuel said, what have you done? Samuel doesn't say, man, I'm sorry it took me so long to get here. I got held up. Uh, we, we got caught up in a revival, and, and it was just the Holy Ghost was flowing so good, I just couldn't leave. Right? I mean, it was so rich. It was so thick. <laughs> but he makes no bones like that. He doesn't give any excuses. doesn't give any reasons why. He simply says, what 
have you done? Wow. Is that, is that really a big deal, what Saul's done? Saul made peace offerings to God. He, brought, he burnt, he's offered up burnt offerings to God. What's the big deal? I mean, did, let's, let's measure that against what King David did. Does it really seem like that big of a deal that he offered up peace offerings? I mean, David did a whole list of terrible things. Matter of fact, there's another king I want us to just compare him to for just a moment, a king by the name of Manasseh. Have you heard of Manasseh? Great, great name. There's the tribe of Manasseh. But this king was the king of, he was the son of Hezekiah. And Manasseh took the throne at the age of 12. And he reigned in Israel for 55 years. And you can read his story over in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. But I'm just going to give you a little summary of some of the things that Manasseh did. Manasseh was an evil, 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 evil king. He sinned greatly against the Lord. Matter of fact, he set up in the temple and in the temple courts all kinds of, of, of carved images and altars to these false gods, especially the gods of the stars. He worshipped the stars a lot. And, uh, but also, I mean, this, there's no bounds to this man's ability to do evil. There was also this god called Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H, and you can do some research on Molech. And Molech, there was a, he was a statue of Molech, and he had a big belly, kind of like Buddha, except, except Molech wasn't sitting down. He was, he was standing with his arms outstretched, and his, his big belly was an oven, and they would get that oven white hot, and they would offer up their babies as sacrifices to the god Molech. There was a skillet there that would get hot, white hot, and they would put their babies on that white hot skillet. And offer him up as burnt sacrifices to Molech. Manasseh did two of his sons this way. The scripture says that he did such a great amount of evil and he did it to provoke the Lord to anger. So this is all in your face to God. Evil. And by Jewish tradition, it's recorded that he was actually the one who killed the prophet Isaiah by putting him in a hollowed-out log and sawing him in two. It's a magic trick gone bad. He, he, he had soothsayers and witches and warlocks as his counsel. Anything that would be anti-God, Manasseh did. And finally, God had enough of Manasseh's ways, and he told him, I'm going to wipe you clean like a dish. And it's exactly what happened. The king of Assyria, the Assyrian army came in, and they captured Manasseh. They put a hook through his nose. They tied him to the back of a horse. They chained up his hands and feet, and they paraded him through town celebrating his demise. How many of you feel like Manasseh got what he deserved? Yeah. And then they threw him into an Assyrian, Assyrian prison where he was there. Rotting away, I say good for him. That's what he needed. Maybe you should have just killed him after the kind of evil that he brought into the nation of Israel and the defiance that he had against God, even killing his own children to false gods. Something interesting happens. You go on to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, the Bible says that Manasseh humbled himself greatly before God and began to pray and repented. And then it goes on to say that God forgave him. And not only did God forgive him, but God restored Manasseh back to his throne. Manasseh went back and sat on the throne of Judah, and then he spent the rest of his days tearing down all of those idols and making sure that the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Judah, would worship the one and only true God of Israel. 
an amazing end to his life, but a really terrible start. And yet that shows us the amazing ability of God to forgive and to show mercy and grace. How in the world could this king end up where he was except by the mercy of God? And yet Saul, come on, I mean, shouldn't he just get a little slap on the wrist after what he did compared to King Manasseh? You would think that, I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10 of bad things to do, I'd say he's about a 2. But listen to me. I want you to see today the power of this partnership of kings and priests that you and I have and, 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 and what God did to protect that partnership, to protect their roles. Wow. Now, let's continue to read this verse of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Look what happens. Saul said, verse 11, and Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. So then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. We haven't sought the Lord in this. This seems like a noble thing, doesn't it? Right? Therefore, I felt compelled, or I think the King James Version says, I was forced. I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. He's not offering this up to false gods. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul's job was over. The throne was ripped away from him by him as a king acting as a priest. Trying to be something that he wasn't. Interesting. And it seems to me that God has no tolerance for that kind of thing. That's what it looks like. He makes an offering to the Lord and he loses his kingdom. This teaches us that there is so much at stake in fulfilling what God wants done. Kings and priests work together out of mutual respect and for the common need, and the common need for the kingdom, for the good of the kingdom, I should say. They came together in this partnership for the good of the kingdom. They respected the anointing and the calling on each one of, on each other that God had given them. And each of them had lots of responsibilities. The priest had lots of responsibilities and the king had lots of responsibilities. But I'm going to finish with this thought. I want you to write this down. The two primary responsibilities, the, the, the primary responsibility of the, of the priest and the primary responsibility of the king. The priest was to provide vision. That was his number one job, to provide vision. Listen to me. You have every right to expect that when you come here on Sundays or you come here on Wednesday nights, that that I have taken the time every week to hear the voice of God and to speak God's vision to you about your life. Are you hearing me? To speak God's vision for your life into your life. You have every right to expect that from me, that I have rightly been rightly dividing the word of truth. I've been in prayer. I've been studying the scriptures. It's only right that you expect that. And the primary job of the king or the primary responsibility was to provide provision for the vision the king
king provided vision. The, I mean, the, the priest provided vision. The king provides the provision for the vision. See, why did these kings go to battle? There was a season, there was a time when they would go out to battle, and that was to gather spoils for the vision. And many of you are, you know, maybe asking about your, the job where you are, and you question where you are in your, in your workplace. What, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Is it, am I even accomplishing anything for God where I am? You work with ungodly people. you got to hear things that you'd rather not as a Christian. And you wonder, what am I doing with my life? And I want to help you get a, a fresh vision and understanding about who you are in the kingdom of God. Because like I said in this room, there's lots of kings and there's very few priests here. When you go to work this week, you're not just going to work. It's just a, it's a short week. You're going to work as a king. You've got to see yourself like that. See yourself how God sees you. That this is a calling. And that you have a very important responsibility in the kingdom of God. That when you go to work, you go to war. And you gather spoils. And you bring them into the house of God. For the kingdom of God. So that the vision can progress. You know, the scripture says without vision, the people perish. Actually, that means in the, in the Hebrew original, it actually says in, without progressive vision, the people perish. That is, God's vision is always changing. It's expanding. It's growing. And as you grab a hold of your call and function as you're called to function and only function in your office, then the blessing of the Lord flows freely and richly and uninhibited to you, and then God can trust you then to do what you're called to do. The priest provides the vision. The king provides the provision. And in this, there's a great responsibility, a great partnership in the kingdom of God. And if we all functioned in our office, the church would go into a dead sprint. Wide open. All right? No more flat tires on one side and overinflated tires on the other. We're all called of God. Kings and priests for the good of the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Father, I want to bless you today and thank you for your goodness here today. Thank you for these kings and priests that are gathered in this place today. God, such important people in the kingdom of God. Such worthy, worthy people. Sons and daughters, kings and priests. Father, I, I am amazed at the responsibility and blessed by the responsibility that I have to teach them this today, to encourage them to be who they are and to do what they do. God, I pray that they would take what they've heard today and run with it. Run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. And that they would be vigilant and diligent to their call. That they would not see that they're living some humdrum, pay taxes and then die kind of life. But they're agents for the king. Kings. 
And Jesus is the King of all kings. And it's for His cause that we are here today. And it's for His cause that we live our lives. That we live and move and have our being in Him. Bless your people. Prosper them. I thank you, Father God, that you make our way prosperous and your people have good success. And it all starts with this initial moment where we all come to the understanding that without God we're nothing and without Jesus we can do nothing apart from Him. But we all must believe that Christ died for our sins and that He was buried and He rose from the dead three days later. And our faith in Him elevates us into a new kingdom, a new place, a new reality, a place of everlasting life. In the name of Jesus, we love you and we thank you that as we go from here, we go in victory today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Pastor Brandon, would you come and dismiss us? Thanks for listening to our podcast. We want to invite you to join us in service Sundays at 9.30 a.m., 11 a.m., or 1 p.m., and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Please visit onecausechurch.com for location and events. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at One Cause Church. If you'd like to partner with our ministry, you can now donate securely online. Just click on the link located on the front page of our website at onecausechurch.com.